0: You're going to love this. Just love it.
1: This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, elsewhere in California, on KFOI, Red Bluff, Redding, KKRN, Round Mountain, KGOE, Eureka, in Oregon on KYAQ Central Coast, Queso, Cottage Grove, KEPW, Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, in Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, Orleans WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Hawker, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington, KVGD, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis-St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast-to-coast coast and around the globe, streaming on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing the Globe, five days a week. And you usually hear the show hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today you have me, Angie Cuero, giving Brad and Desi a day on the road. Lots of news today. Then an in-depth conversation after that on the state of the abortion battle in the hospitals, in the courts, and of course on the streets. Serious anti-Trump actions are underway in the House. Now, even if most of that turns out to be symbolic, it's clear that the pressure is being turned up. Let's do the checklist, starting with a big fat one. The House has subpoenaed the tax returns Trump is so fiercely hiding. From the New York Times, quote: "The subpoenas from Representative Richard Neal to Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and Charles P. Reddick, the IRS Commissioner, amounted to an unexpected shift in tactics." Mr. Mnuchin had rejected a request for the returns made under a little-known provision of the federal tax code, dating back nearly a century. So Mr. Neal is turning to a more conventional avenue, the subpoena. He said, after reviewing the options available to me and upon the advice of counsel, I issued a subpoena today to the Secretary of the Treasury and the Commissioner of the IRS for six years of personal and business returns. While I do not take this step lightly, I believe this action gives us the best opportunity to succeed and obtain the requested material. Maybe not, because the New York Times goes on to note... The new approach is unlikely to be any more fruitful in the short term, at least, given Mr. Trump's vow to fight all subpoenas from the House Democrats. Subpoenas are now pending, listen to this, from Ways and Means, Judiciary, Oversight and Reform, Financial Services, and the Intelligence Committees. And like those other broiling disputes, it says, between the legislative and executive branches, the fight over Mr. Trump's tax returns could soon head to the federal courts. And Adam Schiff is considering another tack too, imposing fines for every day the Trump administration ignores subpoenas. Now, this is from ABC News. Schiff said on Friday, House Democrats are considering fines on Trump administration officials in order to enforce contempt actions. As if we could have more contempt. He said Democrats could use Congress's inherent contempt power to try to force officials to obey the subpoenas. Much as I like the visual of throwing people in jail, I think it's more practical to consider levying individual fines on the person, not the office, until they comply. Now, this was in conversation with Mike Allen of Axios. Quote, you could find someone $25,000 a day until they comply. Hmm, you can do that. We're looking through the history and studying the law to make sure we're on solid ground. My goodness. And now the House Judiciary Committee is looking at a new tactic, too, bundling together a passel of contempt resolutions into one big fat club. The Washington Post has this. The chairman of the House Judiciary Committee on Friday endorsed the idea of bundling several contempt resolutions against people or entities affiliated with Trump before having lawmakers vote on them, a sign that House Democrats expect to be stepping up their legal battles with the admin in the coming weeks. I think it's a great idea, Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler told reporters, noting that while such a vote would not happen in the next week, it will be soon. He said, given the unprecedented situation in which this administration's essentially stonewalling all subpoenas, we've never had this before in American history so far as I know, it just makes sense to spend as little floor time as possible and do them together. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi noted the Democrats would advance proceedings against William Barr to the floor, quote, when we're ready, and we'll just see, because there may be some other contempt of Congress issues we want to deal with at the same time. There's more from the House. Are you counting here? Both Dems. And Republicans ignored Trump's whining and his all caps tweeting to pass a disaster relief bill to aid shamefully ignored communities, including storm damaged Puerto Rico. Off to the Washington Post for this, which, kudos to them, included fact checking right in the article. Check this out Thursday evening, the president tweeted his opposition to the bill, calling it the Bad Democrat, all caps, Bad Democrat Disaster Supplement Bill and urged House Republicans to vote against it. Hours later, around 11 p.m., he added that his party must stick together. In a rebuke to the president, 34 House Republicans joined all the chamber's Democrats to pass the sweeping relief package 257 to 150. Some of Trump's most loyal conservative supporters, the Post notes, broke with the president, favoring their district's needs over the president's demands, including rep Steve King Underscoring the bipartisan support was the House's overwhelming approval of amendments Friday increasing the initial price tag of the package from slightly more than 17 billion to just over 19 billion Now stand back cuz here comes a fact check Trump has pushed back against giving more money to Puerto Rico incorrectly stating that the federal government has already allocated 91 billion to help the territory it has actually promised about half of that amount and spent only $11 billion. Now, I know a lot of people would rather see the word lie there. Trump lied about the federal allocation. But you know what? It's just as possible he's just stupid. It's just as possible he's demented. There's evidence of both of those. And he may just think he knows what he's talking about. So let's go with the post on this one. He incorrectly stated, no assumption of motivation. There is more money going to the pointless border wall. The Pentagon has moved $1.5 billion to build a mere 80 miles of wall at the border. Now, where is that money coming from? The Associated Press says it's been pulled from, one, Afghan Security Forces Fund, which is support for the Afghan army and security services, and from a project that destroys lethal chemical agents and chemical munitions, and, wait, there's more, Air Force programs. Because how important could those be next to a wall? Tariffs on Chinese imports went into effect at midnight. China's Vice Premier Liu He walked out on talks after just 90 minutes. Chelsea Manning is out of jail, but that may not be for long. One grand jury's power over her dissipated because its term expired, but she's already under subpoena for a fresh grand jury. She still does not appear inclined to testify any more about WikiLeaks, so she may be going right back behind bars. Here's some good news. Chobani Yogurt stepped up to pay off more than half the debt of a Rhode Island school district that was going to reduce lunch rations to kids who were in arrears to a sunflower seed butter and jelly sandwich. Now, what Chobani did is in keeping with founder and CEO's Hamdi Ulukaya's principles, which he expounds on in a TED Talk that was posted last month. month. And he thinks, God bless him, Maximizing profits for shareholders alone is nuts. Find that TED Talk online. It is worth your time. By the way, the school district has pulled back on that plan. The same day that it was out begging for money to feed kids was the day that Uber's chief architects got richer by $5 billion each. No connection between those two stories. Now, this last story is one that on the face of it sounds like, ha ha, let's all laugh at Ben Shapiro. I mean, he's famously grim. He's argumentative. He's the face of French conservatism. But when he showed up at the BBC for an interview, he got confronted with actual journalism and he took his toys and he went home. Really, he bagged on the interview. He stopped doing the interview. And understandably, people are laughing at an extremist getting his comeuppance. You know, he looked funny. He sounded funny, whatever. What's ultimately more important is that what he ran up against is actual journalism. Now, if you listen to or watch the BBC with any regularity, you know that regardless of what the interviewer may have in common with the interviewee, the questioning is serious with slack not given in most cases. Now, the interviewer here is one of the BBC's most conservative voices, but he wasn't there to enable anybody. He gave Shapiro the courtesy of taking him at his word. Shapiro posits himself as a journalist, so he was questioned about his journalism. And the exposure started to be very uncomfortable. The clip that's making the rounds is the part where he walked off, but the critical stuff, the stuff that American journos could learn so much from, comes before that more attention-grabbing moment. I'm not going to play you a whole 16-minute interview. You can find that at the BBC, but... Listen to these clips. Listen to how this builds. Listen to how an actual no-favorites interview is conducted. The interviewer for the BBC News is Conservative Andrew Neil.
2: I'm interested that you think there's a thought movement inside the Republican Party. I mean, haven't the Conservatives uh, run out of IDs in America? All the new policies, the Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, the Green New Deal, they're all coming from the left, and they're popular. Well, Frank...
3: I mean, frankly, I'm confused by the idea that any of those are are particularly new ideas. I mean, most of those ideas have been around since Franklin Delano Roosevelt at the very earliest, or at the very latest, rather. Some of them go all the way back to Woodrow Wilson. But the idea that new ideas are absent in the Republican Party is obviously untrue. We have a a very strong debate that goes on inside sort of the the conservative halls of intelligentsia uh, about what is the appropriate action to take with regard to the medical system. Should global warming be considered uh, a real threat, or should global warming be, be considered something that technology will solve? And if so, what are the best best aspects of, of solving that? Now, there's a, there's a rich intellectual debate on the right about nationalism versus patriotism, for example, or populism versus free marketeerism. That debate is happening on the right to, to sort of suggest that the right in America is bereft of ideas, but the left is full of ideas. Number one, not all ideas are good ideas. I mean, AOC is pretty good evidence of that. I'm, I'm a big fan of some old ideas myself that I think are, are pretty good. but Beyond that, I think that it is, it is intellectual uh, intellectual sneering of the highest order to suggest that only the left has, has new and decent ideas.
2: Some of the ideas that are popular in your side of politics would seem to take us back to the Dark Ages, Georgia, new abortion laws, uh, which you are much in favor of, uh, that uh, a woman who miscarries could get 30 years A Georgian woman who travels to another state for an abortion procedure could get 10 years. These are extreme hard policies.
3: Well, okay, a couple of things. One, I'm not sure, I mean, frankly, I don't know whether you're, are you an objective journalist or are you an opinion journalist? I'm a journalist
2: that asks questions.
3: Okay, so you're a, you're a supposedly objective journalist calling policies with which you disagree barbaric and no, suggesting I'd, only one side of the political aisle no, has ideas. So I just want to point the, out that I wish you I, would at least be honest in your own biases. Mr. Shapiro, so are, are, I know that
2: in America is now so polarized that in one program you only have the left and another when you just have the right. My job well, is to those who have strong views and put an alternative to them. If you were an anti-abortion anti- well, an anti- well person, I would be putting pro-abortion questions to you, but you are really would, an you, would you would you call the pro-choice person? position so, so, so why don't you so just let me ask answer you my question
3: sir sir I'm happy to answer your question go please answer go, this then. one would you suggest would you suggest that a late-term abortion is brutal I'm not taking as a brutal position' to allow late questions Sir, you just suggested that the pro-life position is inherently brutal and terrible, so I'm asking you, as an objective journalist, would you ask the same question what, to a pro-choice advocate by what, calling what their position I'm, brutal and terrible? What I'm horrible?
2: asking you is that why is it that a bill banning abortions after a woman has been pregnant for six weeks is not a return to the dark ages? What's your answer? My answer is something called science.
3: Human life exists at conception. It ought to be protected. Now, back to my question to you. You purport to be an objective yeah. journalist. BBC purports to be an objective down the middle network. It obviously is not, it never has been, and you as a journalist are proceeding to call one side of the political aisle ignorant, barbaric, and sending us back to the dark ages. Why don't you just say that you're on the left? Uh, Is this so hard for you?
2: Why can't you just be honest? (laughs) Seriously, it's a serious question. Mr. Shapiro, if you only knew how ridiculous that statement is, you wouldn't have said it.
1: Okay, now you can hear Shapiro just decompensating. He doesn't know how journalism works, and he has to resort to shooting the messenger he's not prepared at all. He doesn't have any idea who's interviewing him and what his very public political leanings are. At one point, Shapiro accuses the BBC of bringing him on to make money. Now, again, unprepared. He's not even acquainted with the BBC News funding structure. So at this point, Shapiro is subject to a recitation of some of his own posts and his tweets, and he very legitimately counters that with the fact he's disavowed some of those publicly. That is honest give and take between an interviewer and an interviewee. But then the ongoing, on-point journalism eventually melts him down altogether.
2: You say in your new book, you suggest that America's largest struggle at the moment is, quote, the struggle for our national soul. We are so angry at each other right now. And I I think that's true. I've just returned from the United States. Uh, The point I'm trying to make is that your words are highly designed To produce the consensus and understanding that the book seems to want to produce uh that's my point that you write about you know judeo-christian culture and so on but so much of what you've said in the past would seem to turn its back on judeo-christian culture
3: you're lecturing me on judeo-christian culture after you call the pro-life position barbaric
2: i I just ask you a question
3: and I asked you a question. You failed to answer a single one of mine. Well, frankly, I find this whole thing a waste of time. If you want to read the book and critique the book, why don't you read and critique the book? If you want to read, if you want to critique me, you can think whatever you want of me. Why don't you frankly, just try and I don't care. The I, don't, I don't frankly give a damn what you're, you think of me since I've never heard of you.
2: You and I've never heard of you until I briefed myself for this. But that's not the issue. You haven't. And why the hell are out, you interviewing it's me? An, it's an interesting book. But my point is, your book claims that society— Well, it'd be, society, be nice if you had quoted from time to time. Your book is—well, actually, I've done so several times, and I'm about to do so again, if you would let me just finish the question. Your book uh, frankly, claims that this, uh, society you know honestly, is turning honestly, its back sir? on Judeo-Christian values. What are the values it's turning its back on? i, I
3: you know, I, I'm not inclined to continue an interview with a person as badly motivated as you as an interviewer. So I think we're done here. I appreciate your time. All sir. right. Thank you
2: so well, uh, thank you for your time and uh, for showing that anger is not part of American political discourse. Now, Mr. Shapiro, we'll say goodbye.
1: OK, there you have it. The whole thing is up on the BBC News site, if you want to hear it, about 15 minutes long. But the important takeaway is not that Shapiro is a snowflake or that his voice is funny or other various interpretations flying around today. What's important is that whether someone's asserted views can stand up to authentic adversarial journalism tells you a lot about their legitimacy. Apparently, Shapiro hasn't encountered much of that on our own side of the pond. So it's interesting to hear him confront it. Coming up next, an in-depth look at where we stand on abortion. This is the broadcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by Bradblog.com/donate to sign up for a subscription to the broadcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at
2: Bradblog.com/donate. Thank you.
1: It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero, the host of In Deep with Angie Cuero, heard on many of these same stations and streams. Now, over at In Deep, we have a roadmap series. That's where we and our guests look at where we are, where we're going on key issues. Recently, we looked at abortion. My guests were Amy Everett, vice president of special projects and the California state director for NARAL, Pro-Choice America. And from the world of medicine, Dr. Monica McLemore of UCSF's Medical Center. She is also with the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health and the Women's Options Health Center at San Francisco General Hospital. So here's part of our conversation.
0: In your introduction, you talked about this being one of the most controversial issues in America, and I actually will dispute that. Okay. Specifically on what you later identified as why, seven in 10 Americans support reproductive freedom and legal access to abortion. That's not a minority, that's not a subgroup, that's the majority, a supermajority of Americans believe this. And as you said earlier, they believe it because sometimes they're personally opposed. To abortion, but that doesn't mean that they feel the government should be making a decision for all women Mm -hmm. or anybody with a uterus. That is the first thing. And I would also say I wouldn't call it an anti abortion movement. Really? Really, because if they were anti abortion, they would be with us on birth control and sex education and family planning, and they're not. And so when I look at all the laws that they are trying to pass across this country and have passed and are trying to, I would call them anti-women, because they actually are just simply trying to control women's reproductive health and freedom as a way to control our ability to have economic security and independence and live the lives that we want to live. Doesn't that cast some women as anti-women? Yes, that's entirely possible. Monica? Well, I
4: have to agree with most of what Amy said, um, because I, too, approach this work from a reproductive justice lens. And so I want to just say that, you know, all people with the capacity for pregnancy do not necessarily identify as women. So I actually bring in this broader understanding that abortion is healthcare. It's It's under medical supervision and under clinical supervision. And so the whole idea that, that it ever has been around um, concern or stated concern for pregnant people is actually disingenuous and not true then we also would have a stronger social safety net if this was really, really around the propagation of the species and having, you know, people have healthy pregnancies and and being able to make family in the ways that they think are important. Um, So from where I sit, you know, I I actually um, believe that people who are uh, against abortion, in my mind, are, um, they have a real uh, problematic understanding of bodily autonomy.
1: That's, That's an interesting way to put that. One of the complications there is that there are more and more centers. And and I mean, some that are expanding hospital corporations who don't provide full health care for women. And we had one of them on the show. uh, Pardon me. We had we had an academic on the show Mm -hmm. who was affiliated with one center. And I said, you know, as as a woman. I don't bring you my throat and my lungs and my intestines without bringing you my vagina. My vagina needs care, and that care may involve abortion. And he didn't seem to buy that. So the idea that abortion is one of women's health care services isn't universally held.
4: Mm -hmm. No, that's true. And it's unfortunate because, as you so timely pointed out, after Roe, much of abortion care has been segregated in clinics, separated from the rest of what people think is health care. But I would posit and I would argue that any, you know, uh, procedure or any medication or anything you would need in order to be able to maintain your body that happens under the supervision of health care is healthcare. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if I, I personally believe that the separation of abortion services from the rest of healthcare is purposive, it's part of a strategy to be able to divide and conquer in the same way we divide up, you know, reproductive health, period. Birth, abortion, family planning, contraception, aging, you know, risk for gynecologic cancer. This is all a continuum around being a person who has reproductive organs that need care. hmm
1: well, let's talk about staying with those, the fact that everything's moving over to clinics and that hospitals in some corporate settings don't provide that. Amy, I have trouble understanding why some of these have tax implications for the communities that foster them, and yet they're not providing full care. And in some cases, it's no longer called Catholic Healthcare West, but it was at one time. And it, mm-hmm. it just seems an uncomfortable meshing
0: legally of church and state to me. I couldn't agree with you more. In California, based on our constitution, we have a constitutional precedent that if you're going to be providing maternal care, prenatal care, or OBGYN services for giving birth, you also have to provide the full range of services, including abortion care and um, birth control and contraception. The Catholic health care organizations, which now control one in six hospital beds in America, are exempt from that and i will tell you in my 15 years working in the reproductive freedom movement i have not been able to figure out how or why except that they have this claim to religious freedom which the federal government has recognized and that to a certain extent the california government has has acknowledged but i think it's time for that to change because as um, monica pointed out healthcare is healthcare and In a lot of communities in California and throughout the country, the only health care available is actually being provided by women's health centers. And it's not just that they're doing abortion. It is that they are providing health to the entire woman. I am always reminded of the Time magazine article when I was growing up that had a picture of a fetus in a womb. And the entire article was about when life begins and all these questions. But all I could think of was, where's the woman? That, mm-hmm. I have never seen a floating womb all on its own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I've always thought we have lost the conversation about what it means to be pregnant because it's women and people who identify any way they want. Pregnant people are, it comes with a whole body that has whole body health needs.
4: And I would argue this is going to come to a very interesting conversation because, you know, there is a proposed merger between the University of California and Dignity Health. And so next week, um, on April 9th, the regents are going to be meeting to talk about this. And I know that many of the faculty from our long acronym, which we pronounce ANSWER, Advancing <laughs> New Standards in Reproductive Health, um, and the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health, uh, both housed uh, in the OBGYN department at UCSF, of which I'm both I'm affiliated with both. We are sending representatives to that regents meeting to talk about what it means to have a potential merger of clinical health services with Dignity Health. And it's not just about abortion. I mean, we also want to be thinking through the fact that there are people who need infertility services, um, because those are also not acknowledged or covered as essential reproductive health services. For For men or women? For men or women. So it's a bigger conversation around the provision of health services. Are, Are we going to be providing comprehensive health services in the state of California? In the context of this merger, and I'd like to remind people that the University of California remains a public entity. Right? It is a publicly funded academic institution. And so when we think about merging of health services in a state like California with an entity, i.e. Dignity Health, what does that mean? Not just for the communities that we serve, but I also like to remind people there are employees that may or may not have those religious beliefs within those institutions. And their health coverage is also impacted by some of these decisions that are made in the context of, of services.
0: And I, I think it'd be really important for your listeners to understand what the impacts of Catholic healthcare are when um, somebody walks into their hospital or their care. What is the difference between walking into UCSF and walking into Dignity Health?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I personally think that there there's a couple of things. I mean, number one, you know, it is very obvious that the University of California and our affiliate health centers Um, are public entities and public institutions so that when you walk into a religiously affiliated institution, it may not be clear that all are welcome. It may not be obvious that you're even in a religious facility where you may or may not be able to receive services that you believe that you would like to be able to receive. Um, You will see differences in terms of personnel. You will see differences in terms of uh, imagery. You will see a whole different Uh, you will have a different experience in in those two uh, institutions and that that needs to be very clear about who's going to have supremacy in terms of uh, communication to people who are seeking care and services at at those institutions. So I have a ton of questions about what is it going to look like for a public university to uh, provide some uh, health services in partnership with a religiously affiliated one.
1: Is there, Amy, is that is that uh, akin to anything else going on across the country where, where there's this decision of blending public services with the Catholic services?
0: Yes. I mean, it, it, there are so many examples, I'm stumbling on where to begin. Um, <laughs> title 10. Title 10 comes to mind. The Trump administration has changed the rules around who can apply for and receive Title 10 funding, and Title 10 funding is um, the largest family planning or um, support group, or supporting financial system in, in the country. And it provides money for low-income people to access um, birth control and contraception. And just in, and California has always been at the forefront of providing Title X money to clinics that provide the full range of services and information. Not that they all provide abortion, but they provide all the full range of um, contraceptive care. And for the first time, another group has just received funding. And mm-hmm. it's called the OBRIO group. This is a religiously affiliated anti-choice, anti-birth control, anti-woman organization that's just received federal funding, and the only birth control that they advocate is natural family planning, Mm -hmm. the rhythm method, which I will defer to the doctor as to how effective that is, but my understanding is that um, pretty much every other form is much more effective. So there's one example. I'm assuming that's going to see some kind of legal challenge, is it not? Yeah. Yes. yes. There are numerous states' attorney generals who have already filed against this. And, and, and to your earlier point, the courts are going to be a major part of the future of reproductive health care delivery and access. Other examples are the case of religiously affiliated hospitals taking over more and more hospital beds and imposing their directives onto the patient-doctor Relationship and this does this includes access to abortion care if you have an ectopic pregnancy if you have um, a life-threatening disease but you aren't your life is not threatened at the moment mm-hmm. um, miscarriage management but also end-of-life decisions dying with dignity and if you're LGBTQ getting the sort of care that you walk in there expecting to get they deny that level of care they expect women to go to the brink of death before providing care that any other medical doctor would be providing early and more safely.
1: Monica, you have a sense that people have a more gloom and doom feeling about this than is necessarily, you know, reflects an accurate picture of what's going on. So, so far in this segment, we've been talking about some structural issues in obtaining abortion, in obtaining complete health services. Where's Is there any good news in there
4: we're not aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think First of all, you know, time after time, and Amy can talk about this, um, you know, we've seen uh, challenges to reproductive health rights and justice, and we've found that, you know, Roe is a constitutional right. And so we found that many, many lawsuits have occurred, and they've been struck down right? So that's piece one. But, you know, pre-Roe, you know, there was a lot of harm, a lot of women died, and we had a lot of um, morbidity and mortality around unsafe abortion. But we're lucky that currently we do have some new technologies um, that will assist us um, in, in at least knowing that the there will be opportunities, and I'm speaking specifically around misoprostol and mifepristone. So having medication abortion be available um, potentially could mitigate some of the actual harms that we saw pre-Roe, because we didn't have those technologies that were available for people to be able to have safer abortions. But I do wanna you know, point out that one of the things that reproductive justice advocates have been talking about is this larger need for uh, public accountability and and, and almost a a reproductive justice new deal. What are we prepared to ask for in this current context? So knowing that we may not have a lot of the bodily morbidity and mortality because we do have medications that are very, very safe to take uh, to have abortions and to be able to use for miscarriage management. But one of the other things that I think is, what are we prepared to ask for? We're hearing conversations about a need for a bolstering of the social safety net. So that means we need paid family leave. We need to be supporting birthing people. We already have a crisis in maternal morbidity and mortality in de- highly desired pregnancies that are carried to term. Mm-hmm. Right? We already know that in this country, black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related issues. So if we're supposed to then have a reduction in abortion in the United States, and let's say, you know, hypothetically, those pregnancies advanced to term when perhaps maybe they wouldn't. We were already having conversations about how do we take better care of pregnant people who want to carry pregnancies to term and how can we improve access to care. So it's a, it's a more complicated picture than, you know, we're going to, you know, see people with coat hangers and we're going to see people, you know, managing their need for abortion in a very dangerous way because we actually have technologies now that can hopefully help mitigate that. Mm-hmm. But we've also mobilized individuals who historically have not come to say, what can we be be doing to ensure that people with the capacity for pregnancy can remain safe, um, and having hospitals and other healthcare institutions looking at how can we shore up services such that if clinics are you know shut down or clinics do lose access to service, and I don't want to also not say that independent abortion providers who do provide the bulk of of abortion care in the country have also been thinking about what other kinds of partnerships can we create and have so that we can have safety for individuals who either need or or seek abortion care. Mm -hmm.
0: I couldn't agree more that the advent of technology has made abortion much safer. And the response to that has been uh, to criminalize pregnant people. Women and pregnant people in this country are being thrown in jail and being investigated for under a whole host of laws that have been passed that have nothing to do with being pregnant.
1: The legal issues that come up around women who avail themselves of, for example,
0: abortifacients by mail, how does that get prosecuted? Different prosecutors use different laws. But what we really need to have in our country are laws at the federal level and at the state level, that basically decriminalize the ability to self-manage your abortion. Uh, If you are experiencing pregnancy loss, there was an example here in California of a woman who miscarried. She decided to do that at home, and she didn't know what to do with the fetal remains. And so she called her doctor, and her doctor said, call the coroner, so she called the coroner, and the coroner called the police. And the police came to her home and did a search and found the fetal remains in the freezer, because nobody had told her what to do with them, um, and she was investigated. And there are, you know, examples all across the country that are like that. But what it is is the advancement, and it's a very highly organized legal strategy on the other side to impose and criminalize and control women's, re- women and pregnant people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, individuals who have the ability to get pregnant are being told when and how to give birth, how they need to conduct their pregnancies, and when they don't do it according to how somebody else feels they should, they go to jail.
1: Well, let me play devil's advocate here because if you if you advocate for complete autonomy for women, you can conceivably have a case where a woman at eight months, nine months decides that she does not want to have the child and aborts a fetus that could conceivably survive outside the womb.
0: Right, and in that scenario, I would say um, Roe way Wade is the law of the land. Um, it, there are abortions that are illegal, and they come later in term. But the reality is, for that woman, she needs care, not jail. Monica, you want to get in on that?
4: Well, the way that I think about it is this because, and I'm putting my scientist hat on here, because the science is very clear that, you know, um, people are generally certain in their decisions when they're making abortions, and people are relatively certain in their decisions when they seek to continue pregnancies. And so I I worry that for the people who do need abortions later on in pregnancy, whether it's for maternal or fetal indications, that we're muddling up two different conversations, right? So conversation one is this, oh, I want to change my mind late in pregnancy. The data actually don't bear that out. That actually really, um, I think, is a perception as opposed to like a scientific thing. Um, and then this other conversation of there are people who need abortions later in pregnancy, and that should be a, a confidential conversation and decision that, that is made with the pregnant people, the fam- the potential family, and their clinical care team. And nobody actually really can opine about what they could or would do in that situation because you don't live with that situation. So there's two separate pieces that I think that have been too simplistically discussed, which is, you know, regret is an essential component of life. Regardless of whether or not it's a pregnancy decision or a decision about what school you go to or where you live at or whatever, it, we we experience regret in lots of different ways. What we need to unpack is you know, whether, at least scientifically, you know, pregnancy related regret, abortion related regret aren't, they don't really bear themselves out because humans are resilient. Mm-hmm. And some people need later abortions and they need to be able to make those decisions with their healthcare team.
1: Dr. Monica McLemore of UCSF and NARAL's Amy Everett, stay tuned for more of our conversation on the broadcast. <laughs> With the broadcast. I'm Angie Carrow, bringing you some excerpts of an important conversation on the state of abortion rights in America. Here's more with Dr. Monica McLemore and activist Amy Everett.
4: The number of abortion providers in 1994, we realized that um, there were no clinical training, no systematic ways for clinical training and opportunities for uh, physicians. And I'm also going to add in clinicians because I think it's really important that that one of those gems and one of those untapped resources is if we could figure out how to expand the scope of practice for physician assistant uh, midwives and nurse practitioners, we actually could have a whole additional group of workforce that could be able to be providing abortion care outside of the 15 states where we actually have waivers for advanced practice clinicians to be able to provide medication abortion. But we have physician-only laws in the United States that have been on the books for years that state, and this is in 36 states, mind you, that there is a physician-only law that that states that physicians are the only people who can provide abortions. I also want to take us back a little bit to be able to say there's multiple kinds of abortions that people have. So you can take pills at home, you can take pills in a clinic, you can have an aspiration procedure, you can have a later procedure, or you can have what we call an induction. And an induction is just like an induction of labor. And so one of the, you know, low-hanging fruit. If we really wanted to expand abortion access in the United States under this construct, you know, we allow midwives to catch babies who are alive, but we don't allow them to attend inductions, right? Whereas in the UK, because they use so much medication abortion, the midwives have full autonomy, they manage most of this in their model of care. Mm-hmm. So we could be having very different conversations about what access looks like, but we, our legal system is set up such that within 38, 36 states in the United States, there are very distinct laws that state that only physicians can provide abortions. Now, going back to the education and training piece, because I'm at an institution where we do education and training for abortions, um, we do see a decreased number of individuals wanting to be able to enter programs and pe- to be able to provide that care. Despite the fact that it is a competency of uh, medical, general medical education, that programs that have a certification in obstetrics and gynecology have to provide the opportunity for learners to be able to learn. So but if you think about it, you know, if who wants to be harassed, who wants to have to have their, you know, children's school be inappropriately invaded because we're trying to get at the, the few physicians who have committed their lives for caring for people across the reproductive spectrum. Mm-hmm. Again, this goes back to had we never been separated from the rest of health care, perhaps maybe we would have infrastructural support to be able to provide comprehensive care across health systems. Question from
1: the audience. Why is it so hard? This would be great, especially if you've talked to people who are in the anti-choice movement. Why is it so hard for anti-choice advocates to realize that supporting family planning and providing good, honest sex education will make the need to provide abortions plummet? okay, this ads, are they stupid, but I'll leave that off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, if you've had those conversations, where's the disconnect?
0: So I think it's to your earlier point when you opened the program, it's about labels. So I'm just going to tell you a personal story. I just climbed Kilimanjaro. And I climbed it with one of uh, with an OBGYN from Texas who was not for choice. And so we had a long time to talk. Um, and at the end of that 10-day experience um we're very good friends and i had to turn to her and say i want you to know that i actually identify as pro-choice and although this might not sound comfortable so do you because i believe everything you believe except that you're personally opposed to abortion but when you have a patient who comes to you you give them all of their options you send them to planned parenthood or to another center i said and that's all pro-choice means is giving and respecting pregnant people the opportunity to make the decisions about their own health care. And so I have found in many ways, in many conversations, that if you just stop and listen to what they're saying, um, a majority fit into that 7 in 10 of Americans who support reproductive freedom, which is, I may not personally be supportive, I may never choose that for myself or my family, but I don't make that decision for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Now, you have the three in 10 who feel that they are entitled to tell the entire world what to do and how to live their lives and what to do. There is no talking to them. They have made up their minds. They will um, come to their own conclusions. But one of the things that I find fascinating, the reproductive freedom and justice movement is a lot of our staff and a lot of folks that are activists grew up in those communities. They grew up in what are considered very anti-choice, patriarchal societies, and they reject it because they know that their worth is not dependent on their womb, Mm -hmm. and they leave. Mm
4: -hmm. Well, and I want to give you some data because um, I recently just got um, some funding to study the nurses who work at crisis pregnancy centers um, because I'm really curious around how they conceptualize their work. Um, But two years ago, we published some data from a study that was entitled Discovering the Continuum Between Conscientious Objectors and Designated Staff, people who actually provide abortion care, to really come to some some clarity and some understanding around is it really a continuum or is it is, is there's something else going on? And from our study interviewing nurses who identified as pro-choice, pro-life, I don't know, I don't care, it was really fascinating to find out that a lot of people who um, say either they won't participate in abortion care or who will publicly say that I'm against abortion do that as a protective mechanism Mm -hmm. because they are worried that they're either going to be judged or that they're going to have stigma. And and they are saying that in anticipation of who the response of whoever they're talking to um, is waiting to hear. So there is this very interesting dynamic where you know people um, have social desirability, and then the context of wanting to be accepted by the person sitting in front of you, they will alter what their personal and their professional viewpoints are about different topics because they don't want to not be liked, respected, or appreciated by you. So uh, from where I sit, the, and the second piece of data that we had was a lot of times nurses who refuse to participate in abortion care, at least in inpatient settings and in hospitals, are not against abortion what they can't do is translate their skill set because for a lot of those nurses it's the first time that they're being asked to participate in that clinical care and they feel unprepared Mm -hmm. so that no gets interpreted as you're against abortion when the no really is i don't know that i can safely take care of this person because i've never had to do this before and those are two different things, right? So for me, I'm always trying to make bigger space for a broader conversation and drawing people in saying, okay, you're saying no, what does that mean? Right, you're saying I'm against abortion. Okay, what, what do you mean? Because we make inherent assumptions about what that means, and I think we need more public space to be able to have a broader, broader discussion about what that really is.
1: Monica mentioned, Amy, she mentioned the crisis pregnancy centers, and for those who aren't acquainted, those are the ones that advertise as providing advice and guidance, but in fact, they are adamantly opposed to abortion and will not advise that, and they won't refer for that. And there have been arguments over whether crisis pregnancy centers should be forced to advertise that they're anti-abortion, whether they should be affiliated
0: with clinics. What's the legal status of crisis pregnancy centers? Uh, They go right up to the line of the law. Um, And sometimes they cross over it, but very rarely. So we have, you know, in the state of California, the state of California has basically found that we believe in honest advertising. And we believe that women and pregnant people should be aware of all the options that the state of California offers, which is prenatal care, um, financial support for prenatal care, for abortion care and for birth control. Um, but what we found with fake women's health centers, which is what these are because they're fake centers, um, is that they will lure you in. And then if they are unlicensed, you have to do your own pregnancy test. And that's how they go right up to the letter of the law. They would be practicing medicine if they took your pregnancy test or Mm -hmm. touched it in any way. Um, but if you do it, they're fine. Um, another way is they don't take, um, uh, state money, um, so they are at some level exempt from having to be regulated by the state. And it doesn't take much, and Monica might know this better than I do, it doesn't take much to get become a community center, a licensed community health center in California. You just need a doctor or a nurse willing to use their license to allow you to provide so-called services. The real problem is the public health that they, the public health harm that they pose, because when you are pregnant, It is safe if everything's perfect, but very few pregnancies are perfect and you need care. Um, And when you are in a place that says they're giving you care, but their only objective is to stop you from accessing abortion care, they're not helping you with other instances. And we have um, examples of women who had diabetes who did not get the care they needed early in their pregnancy um, and other things. And so these centers, I think they are a public health harm, I think they go right up to the, letter of the law, and I think we need to change the law. Mm-hmm.
4: So let me jump in, because I did reference NIFLA versus Becerra, and I'll, t- I'll talk a little bit about that, but let me just make three points before I do that. The first point is pregnancy decision-making is a time-sensitive decision, whether you're going to continue the pregnancy or whether you're going to end it. Either way, it's, it's time-sensitive because it's happening in the context of your broader health. Right. So if you do have pre-existing diabetes or hypertension or some other clinical condition, whether you're going to end the pregnancy or whether you're going to continue it, we, we always like to get people into care, you know, in a timely manner. The second point that I want to be able to make is that, you know, I, I, Crisis pregnancy centers and other types of educational resources and health educational uh, places did fill an existing gap within health care. So in a lot of places, particularly in the South, um, CPCs did not start off providing clinical care. They started off providing diapers and car seats and, and things that pregnant people would need in order to be able to successfully parent in the early stages of parenthood. The third point I want to be able to make is, you know, the alignment of community resources and health systems, we need to have a conversation about that. So all that said, in that context, NIFLA, the National Institute for Family Life Advocates, um, is a very, very uh, anti-abortion, very, very umbrella organization uh, that. Uh, provides operational materials as well as um, uh, policies and protocols for crisis pregnancy centers. And Attorney General Becerra argued a case in front of the Supreme Court last year to say that they, like licensed facilities in California, would have to post that they are or are not a medical facility, meaning that they had a clinical person on site, that they had either a lab or a uh, California um, laboratory improvement um, certification to be able to say that they could do lab tests, i.e. pregnancy tests, Um, kind of like restaurant ratings. They would have to say whether or not they had clinical services or not. And NIFLA brought forward a free speech First Amendment claim saying that by having to disclose that information to people, that it was a violation of their free speech. And The argument was, they they won the argument, and there was a lead uh, brief from Clarence Thomas talking about the importance of First Amendment speech and why them having to disclose that they were not a licensed medical or licensed clinical provider was a violation of their speech. So these 200 centers, and the hard part in California is half of them are not licensed and half of them are, and it's not clear which ones are because they don't, have to, the ones that aren't, don't have to post that are not licensed medical facilities. So now we're in a situation where they also are eligible and have received or will be receiving federal dollars to only provide fertility-based awareness methods or natural family planning. And what does that mean for the future health of Californians? Mm-hmm.
1: With that decision, Amy, is that a dead issue now? I mean,
0: it's a Supreme Court ruling. It's a Supreme Court ruling with the current court. There are a lot of ways that um, California and other states are looking at finding ways to either expose um, so that the general public is more aware of what these fake women's health centers are and what they're about, which was some of the advice that the Supreme Court gave us was Mm -hmm. the state should tell us. And I couldn't agree more. I think everybody should be aware of what these fake women's health centers are and how you identify them. Um, But we are looking in different states and in different um, capacities of how to regulate them and and expose them.
1: Mm -hmm. I just find it so ironic. I mean, if you go into a bowling alley that serves burgers, they have to display a license.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, even in the Niflick case, what I found fascinating is they acknowledge that these centers lie to women. And to yeah. anybody who walks in. And that was a free speech that was protected under this Roberts slash Gorsuch court. And they didn't care that real lives were at stake and real health care was at stake as a result of those lives.
1: I'm wondering how optimistic you are about future decisions, because I think it was yesterday that I read that Donald Trump has now made 92 court appointments, if I read that correctly.
0: I don't know the exact number, but he has appointed more judges to the federal judiciary than any previous president.
1: So where are we with further rule? I mean, it just doesn't strike me that we're in a very optimistic place to
0: revisit bad rulings. We're not in a great place right now, but this is what gives me hope. I've been working on this issue for 15 years, and when I started, nobody paid attention. Roe was in peril, abortion access was bad, uh, women couldn't get care, they were being criminalized, and everybody felt safe and they were saving pandas and beaches and everything else, which is all great. But now, thanks to Donald Trump and a bunch of governors and state legislatures who have overstepped with these um, Bans on abortion, with these criminalization laws, all of these things, the American pro-choice public has woken up, and we are out in the streets. We are in Georgia. There are, there is no piece of choice legislation that happens in this country, anti or pro, that does not have a groundswell of reaction to it. And I think that politics are the la- are the slowest to catch up to cultural change. Mm-hmm. So we have a citizens who are woken up. My job is to wake up companies to start taking a stand on these issues the same way they do for our our brothers and sisters and others in the LGBTQ community, because human rights are human rights. Well,
4: and let me add two pieces of that, because I'm not necessarily sure if anyone saw the Screenwriters Guild and the uh, Writers Unions, both on the East and the West Coast, line up to be ready to do some civil disobedience and boycott around the situation in Georgia, right? So let's just realize that there are folks who have never spoken about reproductive health rights and justice, who are using the power that they have to be able to leverage uh, their voice. The second thing I'm super excited about, can we like not forget that we had a win at the Supreme Court with Whole Woman's Health versus Health? Can we start to think through the fact that there is a scrappy and incredible group of lawyers led by Steph Toady? who successfully argued Whole Women's Health in front of the Supreme Court called the Lawyering Project, who is using Whole Women's Health as the new standard to do a systematic review of laws that are currently on the books and to bring cases forward, to challenge them in a package. So we see in Maine that there are uh, nurse practitioner plaintiffs who are suing to be able to provide abortions and comprehensive reproductive services and to upend not only their physician-only law, but their criminalization law. We also see the case in Hawaii. We see a case in Indiana where nurses are standing up in their communities to say, I have the skills and capacity to be able to care for patients across the reproductive spectrum. We are going to use whole women's health as the new standard to say that undue burden is not a thing. And we are going to uh, challenge a lot of existing laws on the books that are bad. So let's not forget that there is a group of individuals who are taking a huge systematic review. Let's deal with physician only. Let's deal with criminalization. Let's, Let's make a case that that under the now defunct undue burden standard that we can change the current laws on the books We also saw in New York City where they expanded their understanding, and and there are trigger laws, and maybe you can talk about Mm -hmm. these, Amy. There are states who have trigger laws, i.e. if federal role fell, that their state law would automatically outlaw and criminalize abortion. There are people who are taking steps now to make sure that doesn't happen, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So let's balance the court's doom-gloom situation with the fact that we had a, a SCOTUS win under Justice Roberts. Right with Gorsuch one, not Kavanaugh, but we did have a win and that we need to be using it. Amy
1: Everett is the Vice President of Special Projects and the California State Director for NARAL Pro-Choice America. Dr. Monica McLemore works with UCSF, the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health, and she provides services at the Women's Options Center at San Francisco General Hospital. And that is a wrap on the broadcast. Brad and Desi are back for the next one. I'm Angie Coru. Until you hear me again, good luck world.